Happy post-midterm elections. I hope you're not too depressed, and I also hope you're not too excited, because I hope your hope is not misplaced. Today, we also look at the first three churches in the book of Revelation and see how they apply to the times in which we live. Welcome, everybody, to the deep end. It's Wednesday afternoon. It is November 7th, 2018, and we are here together on Facebook and YouTube Live because, well, because we love you. Welcome to the deep end, everybody. My name is Tim, the host of the program, where we take a deep dive into the scriptures and talk about how they apply to the age in which we live. And today is one of those days where you probably need the deep end a little bit more than normal. Uh, Today is a big day in our country. Well, yesterday was anyway. Lots of people going to the polls in a very contentious midterm election season. And I think that has to do with the fact that we have a lot of misplaced trust in this country, a lot of misplaced trust in the church, particularly, because we tend to think that if our guy can get in or if we can, you know, get somebody in to give a check to the other guy, then our country will be better. Sometimes we put too much faith in this stuff. Welcome in uh, also my tech team. We can get a shot of them on the cameras, if we will. Hey, tech team. Doing a great job every week. Uh, We got Josh Pereira on the mic over there. Hello, Josh. Hello, Pastor Tim. Josh will be the voice of your conscience. He will ask your questions, should you have any. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But if I do my job, you won't have any questions. All questions will be answered. (laughs) So (laughs) we're going to go right into uh, the book of Revelation in just a moment. I want to just remind our church that we got first Wednesday tonight. If you're a Waters Church person, come on out. Six o'clock prayer. Seven o'clock, we start the service. But I think today, uh, please come for the prayer. We just, just got to be a praying people. Let's, mm-hmm. let's put our hope in heaven. Let's put our hope in the one that's on the throne uh, in heaven who will never be dethroned in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. So let's get into this. All right. We're going go to talk really deep now about these churches in the uh, second and third chapter of Revelation. We're going to get through three today. Um, and uh, we're going to talk about Donald Trump as well. <laughs> so I'm excited. <laughs> I hope you are. Let's get into the book of Revelation. Okay, I love that. Uh, Today we deep dive into the text. So, Revelation opens up chapter one, vision of Jesus. Chapter two, chapter three, letters to seven churches in Asia Minor. Last week we talked about how are we supposed to look at these letters to the churches. I gave you the church age theory, which is that uh, it's basically a message to the different ages of the church. Uh, some people believe that it's uh, the reflective of uh, uh, the kinds of churches that exist in every age. Um, and then, of course, there's just the historical uh, view, which is that these are seven literal churches in the ancient world in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, uh, this would be on the eastern part of the Roman Empire. Uh, that's important for a reason, because in the eastern part of the em- uh, Roman Empire in the first century, uh, there was a huge empire, uh, emperor cult, emperor cult, which means they really worshipped the emperor in the eastern part of the empire, and that was where these churches lived. And that emperor worship really affected the Christian witness in the cities uh, that John addresses. So... One of the things that John says, well, really Jesus says, to all seven churches uh, is this phrase, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And this is such a cool phrase because uh, we, as God's people, need to learn to listen, Josh Pereira, to what the Spirit says, right? We need yeah. to listen to what the Spirit says. We, and I think that we get so many messages in our age as Christians today. Messages from our parents, some good, some bad. Messages from our friends, some good, some bad. Messages from pop culture, very little good, some mostly bad. (laughs) Messages from presidents and senators and whatever you want to say. So many messages. Are you doing what Jesus says to do? He says this phrase to all, he says different things to all seven churches. But the one thing that he says to all the churches is, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
which means that wherever you are as a Christian, are you listening to the Holy Spirit? Now, I want to go back and talk about this little cultural context issue of the first century church in Asia Minor. And it was this emperor worship um, problem. So the Roman Empire conquered the known world. Uh, it was vast. It was powerful. It was um, unstoppable. It's a lot like America today. They had the most advanced military weapons, the biggest army, the most, um, you know, the, the largest government. And they really conquered the world. They dominated society. Um, now, when we talk about the world, we're not really talking about the whole globe. We're talking about what the known world was at that time, probably stretching from Spain to uh, somewhere uh, east of Africa, some, somewhere between there. Anyway, what we now know as the Middle East was dominated by the Roman Empire. And in Asia Minor, in modern-day Turkey, where these seven churches lived, there was a huge cult around emperor worship. They literally saw Caesar as Lord. Now, why am I talking about this? Because here's the thing on this post-election special of the deep end. I think that emperor worship is alive and well today in America. We are putting way too much trust, way too much hope in who holds positions of power. And the reason for this, and I'm specifically talking about the church, is because the church has disconnected from our eternal hope. We've gotten too comfy, too cozy in modern day America, and we are hoping to make America what we want it to be instead of knowing that our citizenship is not here, it's in heaven, it's in the world to come. And so we need to talk about this. And we're going to talk about Donald Trump, and we're going to talk about um, Barack Obama. And I hope Ooh. you hang in there. This is a segment we like to do regularly because I'm a big politics guy. Uh, let's do a segment, Politicked. So it used to be the rule was that you don't talk about religion and politics in public, right? That used to be the rule. Do you remember this rule? I, I do, yeah. That's the that's the two things you don't talk you about. You just don't talk about. Why? Because it's too contentious. It pisses people off. Too, yeah, it's too personal, right? And it's like, <laughs> yeah, you just piss people off. You, you lose friends. You don't talk to people. I, I have people, and I know people, that don't talk to each other still to this day because of the 2016 election. And I wonder, like, <laughs> is this going to happen now in the 2018 election? And I think, you know, if you let politics come in and divide you from people that you should love, that you should be in a relationship with, you know, that's a, that's a problem. It's not, here's the problem. It's called misplaced hope. It's misplaced hope. Too much hope is placed in the White House or the legislature or whatever you want to say. So emperor worship, alive and well in America. Mm. So in America, it is, you know, pick your poison. <laughs> Who's your guy? Yeah. Is it is it uh, Donald Trump or is it the former president, uh, Barack Obama? And I, I want to say, I know full well that there are Christians on both sides. There are Christians that think that Donald Trump is the savior of the Christian hope. I also know under the Obama years that there were many Christians that voted for this man and believed in him. And, and you remember the hope and change was, this, was the motto. A lot of Christians bought into that too. Uh, and really in America, there's right-wing Christians and left-wing left -wing Christians. And they are usually you know, fighting each other when they should be saying, wait a second, we aren't left wing or right wing. We are actually above all wings. We, we should be working together for the kingdom. But I understand we all see the world in different lenses and so on and so forth. But anyway, here's the question that I have, though. Donald Trump, is he good or bad for Christianity? What, I don't know, what do you man. think? <laughs> well, good. Uh, Maddie, thumbs up, thumbs down. What do you think? Good. No opinion. Right. She, <laughs> she's she not, plays it nope. safe. Good. Good job. Right. I don't. I mean, he's dude, billionaire playboy, but at the same time, he's pro life, right? Well, I mean, that's his political stance now. But yeah. I mean, he adopted that political stance later in life, and and who knows if that was a genuine because he came to the conclusion spiritually, or did he just say, "Wait, the Republican Party has to be pro life. The pro, the Republican, the presumptive nominee has to be pro life, so I got to take that stance." Nobody yeah. really knows. I hope that it's because he wakes up to the reality that that's a beating heart in there. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I, I don't know. It, this might be. Uh, I don't know if this is the answer you're looking for, but I think that God will use him either way. Uh, and I think, well, regardless, yeah. now yeah. let me get there. You're going to, yeah. you're going to see steal my thunder here. All right. <laughs> let me just get there for a second. Okay. Yes, well, sir, let's, yes, let's sir. talk about a little bit of his background. <clears throat> he was raised in New York city and he was uh, an attender with his parents of Norman Vincent Peale's <clears throat> church. Norman Vincent Peale was a Presbyterian minister way back in the 1930s and forties. He's literally the founder of the positive 
thinking theology movement. The positive thinking theology movement still has grandchildren alive and well today. Uh, many of them are on television. Many of them are on the Christian networks on satellite television, right? Uh, this idea that word of faith, uh, name it, claim it, all these bywords, all these slogans. Yeah. Uh, basically, if you believe right, you'll get right. If you believe for good, you'll get good. If you believe enough, if you sow your seed into my ministry, then God's going to bless you and pour out thousands of dollars into your pocket. Well, this is where he was raised. He was raised in Norman Vincent Peale's church. Now, Norman Vincent Peale was not a name and claim it word of faith guy, but he was a positive thinking guy. And what he did was he basically took all the positive messages of the Bible and just kind of whittled them down and left out a lot of other things in the Bible and yeah. said, you know, just be positive. That's the Christian message, <laughs> right? It a bit. Turn that frown upside down in Jesus name <laughs> and God bless you. Well, he went to that church and he really was affected by that. He says that to this day. Now, he's also said that, and this is a lot of Christians don't realize this. He's also said that he doesn't see anything in his life that needs forgiveness. <laughs> really? Uh, yeah. Let, let's just be clear. If that's your view, uh, religiously, you can't possibly be a Christian. No. <laughs> because no. the Christian message is the message of Christ came to die for us, for our sins, and we are sinful and we need forgiveness. Every, now, I don't know if you've, he's changed that stance or whatever. I don't know his spiritual life that closely. I'm just taking his word for it. I'm just listening to what he has said, okay? Right. But we know he's a New York playboy. Uh, he's got a lurid sexual past. Uh, he's been sexually immoral. He's been married three times. I mean, you know, he's not politically correct, and he's said some pretty vile things about different kinds of people. Let's just, let's just be <laughs> let's honest, leave it right? right on okay, let's just leave, let's it, leave right. it on that We don't bus. have to go into that, right? So... The positives, Let, before we get into the negatives, because I think that the Christians who embrace Trump as like their champion have a reason to do so. It's a yeah. very l legitimate reason. For, for instance, you just said, first thing out of your mouth was he's pro-life. A lot of Christians, a lot of Bible-believing Christians, and I think every Christian should be yeah. <laughs> pro-life because the scriptures teach clearly that conception is where life begins, that God sees us in the womb. He fearfully and wonderfully makes us, knits us together in our mother's wombs. That's from the Psalms, uh, Jeremiah chapter 1. Uh, Paul says, Christ appointed me before I was born to be an apostle. So there's always this view of human life from a Christian biblical standpoint that life begins even before conception. The conception was just the, the, the means through which God brought you to life. But anyway, he's very big on religious freedom. This is one of his campaign promises, and he talks about the Johnson Amendment. And the Johnson Amendment limits Christian churches from campaigning uh, for their selective, you know, their 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 desired politician. Right? Yeah. Uh, so he wants to repeal that amendment so that pastors like me can get up there and say on Sunday, I say in the name of Jesus, you must vote for X. And now, uh, let me just set your <laughs> worries at ease. I will never do that yeah. again because I'm not here to preach politics. I'm here to preach the gospel. But he is uh, very keenly aware that evangelical Christians in particular are a huge voting block. And when you appeal to their sensibilities, you will garner their support and you have a better chance at winning the presidency. Now, the reason why he campaigns on religious freedom and wins, I have to say this, and I'm going to hurt some Obama fans here by saying this. The reason why he wins on that issue is because of the religious freedoms that the Obama administration actually uh, messed with. And this is a fact. And if you haven't, if you don't, not aware of this, I'm going to make you aware of this. Oh, the uproar is happening on Facebook right now. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, separation of church and state, right? We, we think about this. Separation of church and state uh, really was thrown out the window with the Affordable Care Act, what people call Obamacare. And the reason why is because it forced Christian employers to provide contraceptive care, contraceptive uh, plans covering, con uh, plans that covered contraceptive costs. Uh, birth control uh, to their employers. The problem is that there's a lot of Christians running their businesses with as much as they can a Christian conscience, and they didn't want to pay for contraceptions uh, or plans that covered contraceptions because they are Christians. Now, I'm a Protestant Christian. Contraceptives <laughs> for me are not an issue, right? You right. Know, I don't care. That's To me, that's not an issue. But for many of faithful Catholics, this is a huge issue. Well, I mean, I think... Correct me if I'm wrong, but the stereotype, at least for me, when I'm thinking about people being against contraception or contraceptives, is the premarital sex part, right? No, no, no. In the Catholic mindset, so you're saying it's so you're, for life. Catholic, you're, really? you're supposed to let the, the Lord do his work there. I mean, let, let, let the chips fly where they may. Yeah. And uh, so this has always been a stance of the Catholic Church. Now, a lot of Catholics just ignore it, but it is still the official <laughs> Catholic stance. Anyway, there's a lot of 
devout Catholics that want to practice their religion. For right. instance, little sisters of the poor had to provide coverage for their employers. Mm-hmm. This is a Catholic uh, adoption agency or orphanage agency. They had to provide contraceptive care for their employers. They're Catholics. This is we can't do this in good conscience. So they had to fight all the way to the Supreme Court. Mm. Uh, many, many people will remember the, the Hobby Lobby case. This yep. also went to the Supreme Court. And they had to fight for their right to operate their business according to their Christian principles. And so now what happens is, under the Obama administration, the idea of separation of church and state gets whittled down into this little thing. No, we're just talking about your private religion. Uh, the state won't mess with your private religion, but anything that you do with any other person publicly, such as a business or any other thing, has to come under the laws of the land. Well, a lot of Christians, they don't see it that way. They say, the Lord is the Lord of all that I do. Yeah. And as long as I'm not hurting anybody, my Christian faith should be able to be practiced in my business as I see fit, and I should not have to pay for things or work at things that contradict my Christian faith, right? This is why you have cake bakers going to the Supreme Court over not making a cake for a gay wedding because they're they're deeply held. Conviction says, although I would sell anything to anyone at any time, I cannot sell this for that specific occasion. Mm. So there's all these arguments. And then uh, this is another thing that happened under the Obama administration. Um, A 5-4 decision, 5-4 Supreme Court decision. Now think about that. 5-4, one vote. Mm. Um, made sure that pro-life pregnancy resource centers were were able to exercise their free speech right to not refer women to abortion centers. Did you catch that? Because that's an important one. This is a 5-4 Supreme Court decision that said, pro-life pregnancy centers, you have the uh, constitutional right to not refer women who come to you and say, I'm looking for an abortion, and you're like pro-life pregnancy resource center, you say, no, we, we just provide adoption options and we provide other resources to help you bring the baby to term. Now, because of this decision in the Supreme Court, they don't have to, because there was a California law, of course, all the crazy laws come from California, <laughs> California law that said that they had to refer women who wanted an abortion and came into their clinic by mistake to the abortion provider. Well, they didn't want to do that in good conscience. And so this went all the way up to the Supreme Court. Thankfully, the Supreme Court ruled on this. And it's um, the the headline in the New York Times reads, you know, this is way back, I think, in January. Uh, Supreme Court backs, listen to this, anti-abortion pregnancy centers in free speech case. And it was a one vote decision. Like, I don't think Christians really paid attention to this like they should have. The fact that this was a one vote decision is enormously important because it just shows the inevitable uh, uh, strife that a lot of conscientious Christians are going to face the larger our government gets and the more invasive our government gets with things like health care. 10, 15, 20 years ago. I mean, how, how would that vote have looked? I don't think it would have been. I don't think it would have made it to the Supreme Court. I think that the <laughs> lower courts would have solved it and said, "What are you talking about? They're a Christian organization. You can't force them to say something they they don't feel right to do." But you say, you say, you say, Tim, look, this is small potatoes. Come on, I mean, they just they just don't want to refer a woman to an abortion clinic. It might seem like a small potato right now, but eventually. There's such a thing as precedent in our court system, and so precedent upon precedent leads to larger problems, larger uh, troubles uh, for Christians in the public arena. And the separation of church and state does not mean, and this is important, it does not mean that you just simply have this option to worship Jesus in your private life as you see fit, but your public life, there's no influence there. No, that's anathema to the Christian message. The Christian message is that your worship of Jesus infects every part of your life. How you do your business, where you work, how you work, how much you work. It affects everything, how you spend your money. So we can't allow this to continue to push on uh, and push forward. And in many respects, Trump has been a positive for that because he has come alongside and said, I am going to support these Christians' rights to exercise their freedoms And so for that, I can say, yes, in some ways, he's good for Christianity. And one of the things 
I'm oh, sorry. Now, now let's go. Now let's go to the bad side because there's plenty of bad side. <laughs> Are you there. saying we should vote for Trump, Pastor? <clears throat> no, no. Just listen because there's this whole other thing with it, with, with him, and of course we've already talked about it. The the morality, uh, the calling people names, uh, the you know the statements that he made about the Charlottesville riots and and the white supremacists there. I mean, we all have heard this kind of stuff. If you haven't, yeah. I'm just you know, if you haven't, be thankful. You're living under a rock. You're yeah, living under a rock. Be happy. <laughs> But here's the thing. I'm old enough to remember in the 1990s when evangelicals really came against Bill Clinton because of his sexual exploits in uh, the White House, right? And they said, unfit to serve, unfit to serve because he's sexually immoral. Oh, now those same evangelicals are saying, but this guy we really like, so who cares <laughs> if he's sexually immoral? And it's like, you know, we can't have our cake and eat it too, and we lose some legitimacy in the public conversation when we um, do these kind of things. Now... I am not saying vote against him and I'm not saying vote for him. I'm just trying to give you some perspective here. Here's a take that a lot of Christians have on Donald Trump. They call him um, the new King Cyrus. This is a big thing in, in mm. fundamental uh, Judaism and Christianity. Uh, Trump is a modern day Cyrus the Great. Well, who is Cyrus the Great? Cyrus the Great was the king of Persia from 549 to 530 BC. And he was the immoral, godless Persian king who enacted an edict. Um, it was called the Edict of Restoration. And he allowed the Jewish exiles to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple. And he allowed them to worship their God as they saw fit. This is Cyrus the Great. There's a little history lesson here. And though he was enormously immoral, far more immoral than Donald Trump, Bill Clinton, put them all together, times it by 10, you get Cyrus the Great, right? Far more immoral, Yet his edict uh, was leveraged to provide the Jews the right to worship their God in their temple the way they saw fit. And so a lot of Christians today say, well, Trump's like that. Trump's like a modern day Cyrus the Great. But here's what you've got to understand, Christian. No matter who's in office, Trump, Obama, or whoever's next, the scriptures tell us that the king's heart, this is Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. Right. So Cyrus was used in that day for the Lord's purposes. And 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 just like Obama was used in his day and Trump is being used right now and so on and so forth. And here's the thing. You've got to stop putting all your trust in this idea of a modern day savior who fills some office in Washington, D.C. or Beacon Hill, you know, or Providence, Rhode Island, wherever it is. And you've got to remember that there is a sovereign over the sovereigns of our state. There is somebody that's going to direct and use whoever is in charge for his purposes. Now, the problem with Cyrus the Great, let me just go back to here for one second. The ultimate problem was he enacted that edict. The Jews went back, not many. I think it was like 10% of the Jews who were in exile in Persia actually went, went back. back. Yeah, which is kind of phenomenal. They had absorbed Persian culture so much, they kind of wow. like got comfortable there. About 10% to go back. Not many. They start rebuilding the temple. The temple gets strong. Uh, Judaism gets strong again. And unfortunately, their strength goes right to their heads. And a few hundred years later, fast forward to the birth of Christ. And guess what? Those same exiles who returned, empowered by the edict of Cyrus the Great, become the Pharisees and the Sadducees who actually put Christ to death wow, on the great. cross and were the people who opposed him the most. And so the Sadducees, they were like the political left and the Pharisees were like the political right. And they let the power that Cyrus the Great gave them many hundred years before go to their heads. And when Christ shows up, God in flesh, they don't have the spiritual discernment to realize this is God the Son. Wow. And that to me, so this is a warning to modern day Christians who whatever your whatever your response is to the to the politics of our day, whatever your response is to the the election results from last night, whatever your response, just be careful because when the when the political powers are against you, sometimes that's actually good for you because it deepens your faith in Christ. And be more careful when the political powers are for you, because that will actually maybe draw you away from Christ into this idea that, well, now we own power, and so we're strong, and now we don't have to fight for the spiritual realities of men's hearts. No, 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 no. Politics can be a mess for the Christians. And so that's why we did this segment on politics, on politics because of this 
era in which we live in, too much hope, too much trust is placed in political power rather than in the power of the spirit. To that end, we go back to the book of Revelation because Revelation chapter two and three says it seven times to seven different churches. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit would say to the churches. Now we talked about the churches last week. The churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, seven churches Jesus addresses personally, and they all had some problems. They all had something going on that that the Lord wanted to speak to, and they were all struggling with this emperor cult, this do we worship, do we fall in line with Rome and worship the emperor, or do we stand strong in our faith? And what you're going to find out as we read through these seven churches is some churches did very well. Some churches did very poorly. And so let's take a look at it. Shall we get into it? Yes, we shall. Since you didn't say anything, I'll say it myself. (laughs) Ephesus. Let's talk about Ephesus. I call them successfully apathetic. Successfully apathetic. Okay. Now, Ephesus and Smyrna were the first two churches addressed, and they're in two cities that had not one, but two temples. Mm where people went and worshiped the emperor. <laughs> imagine that in modern day America where we have like this temple to the president of the United States. Like just imagine that, right? <laughs> you got to think about this. This is ancient cultures. And so they would go in, people would worship the emperor. Oh, worship Caesar. Oh, Caesar is Lord. And then they would come out and think, okay, now we've done our job for the emperor. And so Ephesus and Smyrna, the first two cities have two temples uh, in um, in their cities to the emperor. And so this, again... Big, same, same emperor. Yeah, same emperor. Yeah, two but two just, temples. Yeah, two temples. And it's, so how, as a Christian, are we to respond to that? Well, Ephesus actually did pretty well. And Jesus has a lot to say positive to the church in Ephesus. Look what he says. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in the right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Just a little note about that. That just means that Jesus is walking amongst his church in every age, at every time, in every city, wherever his church is, Jesus is there and he's watching us and he's observing us and he has something to say to us. Are we going to listen? And he says this, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. He says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Lots of positives, right? Yeah. Like, this is a good church. Uh, This is a church that has the right doctrine. Like, he says, you know who the pretenders are. And I love that about you. Like, you, people come in, they say, I'm an apostle. You're like, nope, we can tell. Wrong doctrine. Get them out of the church. So this is a church that stands for right doctrine. This is a church that works hard. So they have the right programs. This church has the right standards. And they're, they're doing really well. And it's in many respects, Ephesus is like a dream church for seminary graduates. Right? Yeah. This is like, oh, I would love a church where all the doctrine is right and the people are doing right. And there's lots of good programs for kids and teens and preschoolers and adults and singles and all this. And that's what Ephesus is. Wow. And Jesus says, you got it going on, man. You are like the church. Kind of sounds like uh, kind of sounds like Waters Church. Kind of like, does sound like Waters Church, doesn't it? Yeah. Right? And But yet Jesus says, wait a second. I have something against you. In verse 4, he says, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. Like, whoa. Wow. That's crazy. And it's really actually a warning to the church today that it is entirely possible to have a great church on the outside and no heart for God on the inside. Like, that's, that's true, right? He says, remember, therefore, where you have fallen and repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I'll come to you, remove your lampstand. I'm going to take your church out from its place unless you repent. And then he says, but you hate the work of the Nicolaitans. We'll, ha- we'll talk about them later, which I also hate. And again, he says, again, he says, he was an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the one who conquers. I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Okay. Ephesus is a firm warning to those churches that think they got it going on, but wait a second, check your heart. Is your heart in love with Jesus? And so many churches, so many leaders, and we do this here too, Josh. Yeah. We compare ourselves to the, to the, because whenever you're one of the churches that's got it going on, there's always another church in some other city that's got it going on more than you. So let's, man, if only we had their program, if only yeah. we had their building, if only we had that kind of staff, right? You end up competing with each other. And here's what we do too, though. We idolize the form rather than love our God. Yeah. 
right? Idolize that form of Christianity. And, and, I, and I fall into this trap too. And this is a warning to Christian leaders and pastors who are listening. Like some of you think like, if only I can get to our church to 300 people, man, then we'll be cooking. If only we can get to 1,000 people, we'll be amazing. If only we get to 2,000, 10,000, whatever, it never stops. And if we're not careful, we'll fall into that trap of idolizing visual success at the expense of spiritual life. So like this past weekend, we had a, I had a lady come up to me. She said, thank you for this church, right? This is after service. She said, thank you for this church. And yeah. I said, what are you thankful for? She said, this is what I'm <clears throat> thankful for. Before I came to this church, I never realized that this other church that where you know, she mentioned her relative goes to, yeah. uh, they were all about formalities, rituals, titles, you know, the forms of religion, and they never talked about Jesus, and they never talked about sin, and they never talked about repentance. And here I've come to Water Church. You guys talk about this. You talk about Jesus all the time, and it's wake. It's awakened my eyes to the reality that there's a lot of churches that got all the forms and all the styles, but no substance, yeah. no love for God. And and this is that was a great encouragement to me. Absolutely, man. But we also have to even in our in, even in our state to say, wait a second, wait. Are we though even in our got it going on kind of mentality? Are we? Loving Jesus. This is why every time I preach, I say, let us see Jesus. This is why I try to find Jesus on every page. Because it's not about our church having it going on. Our church has no power to save anybody. That's our right. church has no power to change anybody. Yeah, just Only Jesus does. people, then that's yeah. the point. Right, and it can fall into that trap. We're just entertaining. We're just we can have another formality. Only our formality is not titles and positions. Our formality is. Um, performance and entertainment. Yeah, be cool. Be cool. Yeah. So what does Jesus say? He says, repent, do what you did. And notice that he says, consider the place from which you have fallen. That love for God is an elevating experience. He says, you've forgotten your first love. Remember where you've fallen from. That when we fall from our love for God, it's actually, it's a lowering. We get, de we get, we get a, a, a de-elevation experience, if you will, that, that, that we start, suddenly start to get too earthly. And again, this is why too many Christians get too political. If you are so in love with Jesus, you're going to be able to love him no matter who is in charge of your world. And so the church in Ephesus had to learn this lesson, and they are a lesson for us. And Jesus says to them, go back and do the things that you did at first. And there's a lot of Christians listening to me right now. This is where you are. You are living in Ephesus because the love that you had for Jesus in a prior moment in your life is not the love you have now. And God is saying, you might have a great life. You might have great kids. You might tithe. You might do all the religious things, but your heart is far from me. And, and notice what he says. This is a very firm warning from Jesus. He says, if you don't repent and get back to loving me, having that heart relationship with me. I will come to you and remove your lampstand from his place. In other words, I'm going to take your witness and your culture out. And to me, that's scary just, a, that's, it's a scary thing, but it's also an encouraging thing because here's what it's saying. You know what it's saying? It's saying that when the church loves the Lord, it is actually the most impactful message it can have for the world around it. Like that's, that's what I think. That's what I think is it. Jesus is saying, if you love me, if you show the world, and if your love for me is first, and my and I'm the number one priority in life, people are gonna notice. They're gonna notice. If you don't have that, eventually your cultural witness will fade away. Wow. That's Ephesus. So let's go to Smyrna, because Smyrna, another city where emperor worship was huge, uh, like Ephesus. They also had two temples where people went and worshiped uh, the Roman emperor. Well, what does Jesus say to this church? Because it's a completely different message. And this is the thing. They're not that far away from each other. We can actually, maybe we can sweep this camera over here to the whiteboard and we can just take a look at that map again. And so Smyrna is not that far uh, from uh, Ephesus. You can see Isle of Patmos there on the bottom left. Then you go, the arrow goes to Ephesus and then just to the northwest is Smyrna. So not that far from Ephesus, but totally different reality. And that's how it is in the church. You can go from city to city <laughs> and there's totally different churches there. Go down the street, man. Yeah. So here's what Jesus says to the church. He says in Smyrna, to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but I love this, but you are rich in the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Okay. Oof. 
Smyrna is one of true churches that Jesus does not rebuke. And the reason why, and the other one's Philadelphia, the reason why is because these two churches, Smyrna and Philadelphia out of the seven churches, are suffering terribly. They are getting killed for their faith. Brings me to an important point about Christian experience. Christians, suffering is not bad for Christians. You know, I don't think, I, I, and, and this is all over the Bible. Uh, Christian witness and testimony have suffered far more problems from times of comfort than times of challenge, <laughs> right? Think That's about even it, your own personal life. When yeah, do you, you pray? Complacent. Yeah. When do you pray? You pray when life sucks, right? When <laughs> God, do you, please help. When help. do you drift? When do you drift from God? When everything's okay, when your bills are all paid, when everybody loves you, blah, 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 blah. You're not going to pray, okay? Yeah. Well, Smyrna... They're going through times of challenge. And I know for my own self, when do I meander from a strong relationship with the Lord? When I'm comfortable, when I feel like I'm doing well, when I'm well off, I don't need anything. And this is why a lot of people come to church and they come to church because their life sucks. And then the life gets a little better and they check out on church. They don't come anymore. So why Christians in foreign nations look at American Christians and say, you guys have no idea what it's like to be a Christian. Because we're struggling. We're suffering. There's laws in the books that put us to death for our faith. Yeah. You Christians are worried about, is your church big enough? You Christians <laughs> are worried about, are you going to be able to go to uh, that restaurant? Or are you going to have to go to the cheaper restaurant? You Christians are worried about m- minor details. <laughs> and it's like, you know, we got to wake up to these realities. And I like the fact that these seven churches are addressed. And all the letters go to all seven churches so that all seven churches can learn that there are Christians that are going through some stuff that you're not going through. And there are Christians suffering in some cities and you're not. And you got to remember that and keep it in perspective because your problems are not as big as you think they are, American Christian. Anyway, mm. the spiritual point of Smyrna is this. Suffering is a positive for God's people. This is all over the Bible. Even here he says, I know your tribulation and poverty. But then Jesus says, like in parentheses, but you are rich. Why? Because when you are poor in the world, it causes you to be rich in faith. This comes from James chapter 2, verse 5. James chapter 2, verse 5 says, Has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? In other words, the people who have the least are often the people with the most faith. Why? Because they need it. <laughs> the number one adversary for our security in God is our security in money. Yeah. It's our security in stuff. And when we suffer, when we go through some tough times, this is a positive for God's people. James chapter 1, 10, 2 says this, Count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it all joy when you meet trials. Why? Because James knows that trials are an opportunity for you to deepen and strengthen your faith. He says in the very next verse, he says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness will have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Paul backs this up in Romans 5, 3, and 4. He says, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. In other words, suffering is positive for God's people. And in Smyrna, he says this, you're suffering, you're poor, you're in tribulation, but I want you to know something, you're rich. Because the bad things that you're going through right now are actually going to produce great things in your spiritual life and in your character. You know who are the people in my life with the least character? You know the people in my the people who have had everything handed to them? Oh, the silver spoon. The silver yeah. spoon. They're the least, like there's no depth of character, right? Yep. There's no depth of feeling about their life because they've never been through something that caused them to really question, wait a second, who can I learn from? Yeah, and they never have to work for anything. And, and it's very, it's very um, evident in, in just how the world works that sometimes the people who have had to struggle and strive through the darkest seasons of life tend to be some of the deepest, some of the most character-riddled people in the world. And, uh, and that's true for Christianity. That's true. He says, look, uh, verse 9, just close this up because he says, And the slander of those who say, you're going through the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are uh, a synagogue of Satan. All right. This phrase right here, Jews and, and are not in a synagogue of Satan, yeah. actually has been used for anti-Semitism in church history because he says, look, the Jews, <laughs> you know, synagogue of Satan. Okay, wait. Uh, that's a misinterpretation of this text. What you have to remember is that first century Christianity, l- mostly Jews, And so what happened was, and I talked about this a couple episodes ago, uh, if you were a Jew, you were exempt from worshiping the emperor. And the reason why you were exempt from worshiping the emperor as a Jew was because you belonged to a synagogue, right? Right. We talked about this, and your name was written down on the synagogue rolls. And this is based on the thing with with, uh, King Cyrus, right? 
no, no, no. That's oh, way back. But the, right. this is in the Roman Empire, right? Oh, Roman, in the first Roman. century, the century that Revelation is written to. Yes. So as long as you belonged as a Jew to a synagogue and your name was on the rolls, you were exempt from worshiping the emperor. That's right. But you had to pay a tax. <laughs> so it's like, you know, typical government. Like, you don't get have you to one way or us. another, man. Yeah, you don't have to worship us, but give us your money, right? So anyway, <laughs> the Jews would pay this tax and they didn't have to worship the emperor because they didn't want to. They were Jews. They worshiped one God. Okay. But when, when people became Christians, they had a real hard time with paying that tax because it, it, it went to, you know, the immoral practices of the Roman Empire. And, right. it, and, and they believed that Jesus was Lord, not Caesar was Lord, right? So what happened was a lot of Jews became Christians in their synagogue. And what happened was there were non-believing, non-Christian Jews who threw them out. Oh, wow. And so those were the people who were persecuting the Christians, the Jewish Christians, were their own Jewish brothers. And so Jesus says, look... I'm just going to give you my perspective. They're not my brothers and sisters if they're persecuting you. And he was talking to Jewish Christians. So he's like, look, they say they're Jews, but they're not. They're actually in the synagogue of Satan because they are paying that Roman tax and they're supporting the, the Caesar over you. Lesson for 21st century Americans. If your political allegiance causes you to turn your back on your brothers and sisters in Christ, you too have a misplaced allegiance just like these Jews in the first century. You got to be bigger than that. You got to yeah. be above that. You can't let that cause you to turn on Christian brothers and sisters. Anyway, yeah. that's what he says. The, he knows that these people are speaking against them. They're in the synagogue of Satan. And he says this, do not fear, verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Now, if there's ever been a word from Jesus that I would never want to hear, <laughs> like that phrase, I just don't want to hear that phrase. Yeah. Please, Jesus, don't tell me that I'm about to suffer. <laughs> but he says, do not fear it because you're about, I know you're about to suffer. He's not going to hold them back from suffering. Incidentally, uh, to Smyrna, he says, don't fear you're about to suffer. To Philadelphia, the sixth church, he says, I'm going to keep you from suffering. What does that teach us? Some churches are going to suffer. Some churches are not going to suffer. Jesus yeah. is going to let some churches suffer. Jesus is going to let some churches avoid suffering. Yeah. And suffering is under the sovereign control of God. Christian, you've been through some stuff that other Christians haven't been through. And you probably wonder, well, look, I'm, looking, I'm living just like them. I'm in the same nation. I'm in the same city as them. Why are they given so many breaks and I suffer so much? I wish I could give you a straight answer. All I know is that God is sovereign over that. Mm. He's got you where he wants you experiencing what he wants you to experience for his namesake. Smyrna suffered. Philadelphia didn't suffer. He kept them from suffering. Smyrna, he let them go right into suffering until death. I don't know why. I just know that God is sovereign over our suffering. In the book of Acts, right, when the church gets its start, James is beheaded like 10 chapters in. Peter goes to the same prison and he's miraculously delivered by the angel. James and Peter were part of the inner three circle of Jesus' disciples. One gets beheaded, and one gets miraculously saved from an angel. I don't know why. God says, is this one beheading and this one miraculous intervention? It's just the sovereignty of God. He's going to allow you to experience what he needs you to experience. Yeah. But the point is this. Here's what he says to Smyrna. The devil's about to throw you into prison You may be that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. I'll give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Okay. What you have to understand is when he speaks to Smyrna, he's talking about uh, contrast. Like even when he addresses them, he says, um, I am the one who was, I am the one who was first. And I am the one who's last. I am the one who died and I came to life. Contrast, right? Death, life, first, yeah. last. And then he says, tribulation, uh, poverty, rich. Contrast. And then he says here, you are going to die and I'm going to give you the crown of life. Contrast, right? It's teaching us about our Christian faith. The Christian faith flips over the perspective of our world. It flips it over. In the Christian faith, Suffering becomes a good thing because God can use it to develop character. In the Christian faith, poverty can become a good thing because God can use it to help us depend upon him and not upon riches and money. In the Christian faith, um, abandonment and rejection by friends becomes acceptance before or uh, is balanced or countered by acceptance before the throne room of heaven. And so what he's saying to Smyrna is, though you suffer, you have to understand that in the in the economy of heaven, this is actually going to work for your good. Though you die, you are going to live in a way that no human being could possibly live on earth. You are going to have supernatural life. 
And the point is that our Christian faith is not rooted in how our life goes down here on earth. It is not rooted in how much we can earn, how much we can amass, how accepted we are, how popular we are, how many people like us, who our girlfriend is, who our boyfriend is. It's not about that. There's a different There's a different way to assess the value of your experience as a Christian on this earth, and it is assessed not by what you visibly have, because the church in Ephesus had everything and they didn't have any left for the Lord. It is assessed by the riches that you have in Christ, the riches that are coming to you in character development here on earth and ultimately in rewards in heaven. And I believe that for those who give their life for Christ on earth, there is great reward in heaven. Great reward. Great reward. Anyway, let's go to Pergamos. Third church we're going to talk about, last church we're going to talk about. I call this the church a little bit of both because this church also had to deal with emperor worship. Emperor worship, Jesus worship. And guess what Pergamum did? They said, let's have a little bit of both. (laughs) (laughs) Let's not be, and this is where a lot of Christians are, let's not be too Christian that it upsets the apple cart of our worldly existence. Hello. A lot of Christians are there. Like, let me just be just mildly Christian. Let me be Christian enough so that nobody really notices that I'm Christian, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, and this is not just church. This is not just Christians, but this is also churches as well. So to Pergamum, here's what he says. To the angel of the church of Pergamum, right, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Ooh, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith, even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Okay, Pergamum, very wealthy city. And a very uh, religiously diverse city. Now, just remember this. Pergamum had four different uh, cults to four different Greek gods. They had a cult to Zeus, a cult to Athene, a cult to Dionysos, and a cult to Asclepius. 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 I don't know. It's a hard name to say. This is the Greek god of healing, Asclepius. Uh, They actually called him Asclepius the Savior. And there was a throne on which he sat. And notice, if you will, at the picture here, uh, you can't see it if you're listening, but there's a picture of this Greek god. And he's got this staff in his hand. And wrapped around the staff is what? It's a snake. Is a snake? It's a snake, right? And what they had, they had this temple in Pergamum where they would take the sick. It was a temple to Asclepius. Asclepius. I practiced that name like 30 times before the <laughs> you're podcast. Doing, you're I still doing can't great. Say you're doing great Asclepius. Okay. So anyway, they had this temple with a bunch of snakes. And they would bring their sick people into the temple, lay them next to the snakes, hope the snakes would touch <laughs> them, and believe the snakes would heal them. I think Obviously, I know, these I people think didn't know, uh, never met a snake before. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a little ridiculous. anyway. Ancient paganism was crazy, right? Um, so there was a throne with this guy sitting on it with a snake wrapped uh, scepter. Yeah, this is why Jesus says, "I know where you live, where Satan has his throne." And so the people that were going to this God, here's, uh, here's what was happening. Jesus says, I have a few things against you. Uh, you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. We'll talk about that in a second. So that they might eat food sacrificed to idols, note that, and practice sexual immorality. And you also have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, which Jesus had already said to the Ephesians, I hate that teaching. And we'll talk about what that is. Therefore, repent. And if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Okay. Pergamum is the church of uh, compromised Christianity. Compromised Christianity. Uh, Here's a fact, Christian. If Satan cannot get you to denounce your Christian faith through persecution, suffering, and hardship, he will get you to dis denounce your Christian faith through compromise, syncretism, if you will, syncretism, Uh, aligning Christianity with the mantras of the day. I call it cultural accommodation. That's what Pergamum was. So Christians today, um, what does he say? Well, before we get to Christians today, what does he say to Pergamum? He says, you hold to the teaching of Balaam. And Balaam, here's what Balaam did. He tried to infect ancient Israel with pagan worship uh, by eating food sacrificed to idols. And, and so he was basically trying to infect uh, God's ancient people, Israel, with pagan practices. And that's what was happening in Pergamum. So Pergamum, Christians were taking the pagan practices and mixing them with the Christian practices and saying, okay, good, this is all right, we're a Christian, but we just 
we just practice a little paganism. There's like the Christians who go and they get, you know, their astrology read, their their horoscope read. These are the Christians who go and they get their weird tantric massages or whatever else massages you go and you say, I'm just going to mix a little bit of the, you know, the the Far Eastern yeah, Hinduistic practices with my Christian faith because after all, it's just, you know, it's just spiritual. I'm a spiritual person. No, no, wait, that's... This crazy talk. You you don't need to go first off. You don't need to look to the stars to find out what God has to say to you. You can actually listen to the words of the one who made the stars. It's written in your scriptures. So this is syncretism. It's compromise. It's letting the worldly messages infect your Christian experience. So how does this happen in modern day America? Here's how it happens: Be a Christian. But accept that all other religions are equally valid. That would be the same thing. It's really the same thing, right? Be a Christian, but don't think that you have some exclusive view of truth. Yeah, like Jesus isn't the only way. Jesus is not the only way. You know, come on. We're modern people now. You know, you can't be all fundamental like that. And a lot of Christians do. A lot of Christians just take this. They're like, yeah, I guess you're right. You know, maybe, you know, Jesus is one of the ways or whatever. Maybe he's not sovereign. Maybe he's not God totally. He's kind of kind of half God, whatever. No, you're compromising. You're syncretizing to your culture and you are being infected with the the enemy's lies. There, And so the other thing that Jesus mentions to Pergamum is this, that you... Um, practice sexual immorality. And so the other form of syncretism for the Pergamum church was this, that they let sexual morality come into their ranks. And this is another thing that Christians have struggled with in almost every generation, sexual morality. If there's one thing, Josh Pereira, that (laughs) non-Christians hate... About true Christians. For those listening, I, he's not. No, I'm just, I just, I'm looking at you, and so I'm saying this to you. It has nothing to do with your personal life. All right, I, I, I've told you I'll keep your yeah. secret secret. Don't worry. Thank you, sir. Uh, if, but if there is one thing that non-Christians don't understand and sometimes even hate about biblical Christians, it is their sex ethic. Yeah. Right. Like, oh, come on, you know, get with the times. Like, seriously, no yeah. sex before marriage, seriously, or yeah. Yeah. don't live together, give me a break, or you, you're not for homosexual marriage, come on, what's wrong with you, or, you know, whatever. Uh, so, look, yeah. this has always been a problem for the church. It's always been a temptation for the church to syncretize our sex ethic with the sec- sex ethic of our culture. Right. And this is where Pergamum was. And Jesus says, listen, if you don't repent... I'm going to come against you and I'm going to war against the ones who are compromised with the sword of my mouth, like my word. That's what it's a symbol for his word. His word is going to come and really challenge them and cut them to the heart and hopefully cause them to repent. But, you know, that's the church of Pergamum. Wow. That's crazy. And it's just an amazing thing how nothing changes, right? Like the same things that the ancient church struggled with, we're going to struggle with today. Are, are we going to get so comfortable in our success like Ephesus that we kind of, you know, lose our love for the Lord? Are we going to let suffering and persecution cause us to start questioning whether we should stay strong in the face of it? Uh, or are we going to find value in our suffering and, tr- and trouble and tribulation? I mean, yeah. these are so relevant. These messages to churches written uh, to churches 2,000 years ago are relevant to us even still today in America. It's crazy. It, it's interesting too because I feel like I feel like more churches should look at these as kind of like check out like where are you on on this Absolutely. list, you know what I mean? Where are you on this list? Are, are we going to be the church of Pergamum which right. says, yeah, we'll be Christian in name, but we're going to like syncretize our theology yeah. with we'll, we'll the still age. marry you just because you're gay. It's okay. Yeah, we'll know. we'll syncretize. We'll compromise because right. you know, after all, we don't want to offend you. We don't. We want your approval. Hey, I got. A, I got a verse for the Christians out there who desperately want the world to like your version of Christianity. Jesus says this in Luke six twenty six. He says, "Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets." Ugh. In other words, Jesus is saying, Christian, if everybody in your world is okay with the way you're a Christian. You might not be a Christian. <laughs> I mean, this is the words of Jesus, like Luke six twenty six. He's like, you might not be following me if everybody thinks it's cool the way you're following me, Christian. There's gonna always be people who think you're crazy. There's gonna be always people who think, man, you just gotta lighten up about stuff. And I get it. There's a lot of things that Christians can lighten up, lighten up about. Like Christians can lighten up about what kind of music to listen to. Yeah, I was, what kind of movies? Yeah, I was just thinking about. You know, I was whether reading... tattoos should be you know accepted or whatever. I, I get that. We can like lighten up about a lot of things, but when it comes 
comes to things that we do to our bodies, like specifically about sex, because the Bible's yeah. cover this. The Bible covers uh, sexual morality ad nauseum, right? It's all <laughs> over the place because God knows how damaging this can be to you, yeah. body, soul, and spirit, right? Or um, worshiping false gods. You know, there's such a thing as demons, and and you start to syncretize syncretize your Christian faith with demonic activities such as astrology, astronomy, whatever, not astronomy, astrology, <laughs> you know, tarot card reading and all kinds of things that come from the Far East. Man, watch out. There is a spiritual realm. And again, Revelation is about showing us what is most real. And we're going to get into that as we get into chapter four and beyond. Yeah. So, you know, interestingly, if you brought up the whole demon thing, right? Yeah. Um, it's a little off topic, but I, I was having a conversation with some friends and we were, we were kind of looking at how, like, if you go across if you go across to other countries across the ocean and stuff, uh, like Africa, for example, yeah, there's there's more uh, visual evidence of demon possession. Absolutely, right. So why is it that like in America we don't see it? Because that Christian, because way? America's been so baptized into Christian um, belief, because the gospel has been freely preached in this country. Look, the Book of Acts makes it very clear that when the name of Jesus is spoken, mm. all right, demons have to flee. <laughs> It's all over the book of Acts. Jesus himself cast out demons all yeah. over the, wherever Jesus went, demons were like, ah, leave us alone, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, they're like, we know who you are. Like, they knew who Jesus was more than the religious people knew who Jesus well, that, was. Even right? like the story about the legion. The, uh, yeah, the, the man with the legion. The man demons, with the right? legion, yeah. And so what you see in the Bible, very clear picture the Bible paints that wherever Jesus goes and wherever Jesus is worshiped, demons cannot, they just can't live there. Why? Because demons... Um, are anti-God, they are anti-Christ, and wherever he reigns and wherever he is preached and wherever he is worshipped, they just don't want to be there. They really don't. And so I do think that when you go to these pagan countries where Christianity has not baptized the culture, like America, America right. is a Christian baptized culture. We don't even realize how much we are baptized. <laughs> it's so interesting because, I mean, you know, you don't even think of America almost as a Christian country anymore with all the crap that's yeah. going but on. But if you but, do research, if you do history, yeah. I love the deep end. We talk about this stuff. Yeah. you got to look at it. History in our country is covered, baptized in Christian theology, Christian views, the Judeo-Christian uh, message. Right. So anyway, let's get back to Pergamon. One last thing I want to just say, because again, they were synchronizing their faith. Why? because they wanted to be accepted by the world. And here's what Jesus says to them. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give to some, I will give some of the hidden manna, which means the secret things of God, the word of God. Manna was the symbol for the word of God. Uh, and I will give him a white stone. Like, wow, thank you, Jesus. You know, thank you for this white stone. <laughs> is that a diamond? With a new name written on it uh, that no one knows except the one who receives it. Okay, this is a cool picture because mm -hmm. in Pergamum, uh, they were known for their black rock. Right, and so white stones were used. This is this is cool as an invitation card to popular banquets and festivals. Oh yeah, yeah. And they would write your name on it, and they say, "Okay, you're invited to this popular pagan festival." Now, if you're a Christian who holds to the teachings of Jesus and you can't worship in those pagan festivals that worship all these demons, yeah, and you stay home, he said, "I'm sorry, I can't go." Jesus says, "Guess what? You might not get into those pagan festivals, but guess what? I got an invitation for you. Wow, man. to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's that is so, so cool." cool. Christian, if you're rejected on earth, guess what? You're accepted in heaven. Christian, if you are rejected by your family, the Bible says in Psalm 27, one of my favorite verses, even if my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Someone needs to hear that right now. Your mom, your dad giving you a hard time about your Christian faith. Stand strong because you're accepted in the beloved, the family of the living God, and you've got a future in him. Anyway, back to the big point on this post-election episode of the Ben. Choose your emperor. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and let him not be one of these guys, let right? Let me be clear. You know, if you if you want to support the left, right, whatever, fine, but put your trust in Christ. Amen. Put your trust in Christ. What the Spirit says to the churches. All right, we got one last time. One, do I got time? One last yeah, cool thing, it, right? I want you to remind you. If we can go back to the whiteboard, can we go back to the whiteboard real quick? Yeah, let's go. I want to remind you. The whiteboard. The whiteboard. <laughs> Very nice. Okay. <laughs> this is the Isle of Patmos, and these are the seven churches. On the Isle of Patmos, this is cool, there was an ancient temple, and we can put a picture of it right here up on the screen. There was an ancient temple that was built uh, to 
the Greek god Artemis on the island of Patmos. There was also a huge temple to Artemis at Ephesus. And so it's because of the proximity. So they would worship this Greek god of love. Artemis was symbolized by this multi-breasted woman statue, right? Yeah. Um, Greek god of fertility. The Romans named her Diana. Well, there was huge temples to her in, on the Isle of Patmos and in Ephesus. <coughs> Today, the, on the Isle of Patmos, where John is writing the book of Revelation to these churches suffering, on the Isle of Patmos, there is a temple at the time, there's a building built on the ruins of that temple to Artemis on the Isle of Patmos. I want to show, you to, show it to you on this picture. You can see it from a distance in this picture. Can we put that full screen? Uh, this is now a building on the, on the mountain on, on Patmos, and I'll just show you a closer-up picture of it. Guess, guess what that building is now? It's built on the ruins of the temple to the Greek god Artemis is actually the monastery of St. John. Wow, man. Really? Isn't that cool? That's so cool. <laughs> now, I want you just to get some perspective here. 2,000 years ago, on that island, John was exiled, was cast out by his country as a political exile, a foreigner to their, their philosophies and their values, hated by his world. <laughs> 2,000 years later, that temple that stood so imposing over him on that exile, exile island is now home to a church named after him. That's so cool, man. I think that's the cool. Lift it up. That's, right? that's great. Christian, trust me on this. You might have to struggle now, but there is reward coming. And that's why you don't get baptized into all this conflict in the political realm of America. Our hope is in heaven. Hey, if you got a question, ask anything is always open on the Deep End Podcast. Uh, text your questions anonymously to 508-316-9333. You can also submit your questions in the comment sections on Facebook or on the YouTube page. We always want to answer your questions. We don't want to leave you out in the dark, and we love questions. I love questions, uh, and we'll, we'll do hopefully an Ask Anything segment next week. Support The Deep End at facebook.com slash TV. Like us, please, and follow us. Uh, also, subscribe to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash waterschurch, and look for the Deep End channel. And if that's all confusing to you, make it easy on yourself and just head over to thedeepend.tv on your internet browser, on your phone, or on your computer. I'm so glad that you were here. Josh, thanks for being here. Thank you, sir. Media team, great job, everybody. Mm -hmm. This was The Deep End. <laughs>